Our brother Steve Blakeman is serving in Children's Church. So I'll read the scripture today. Join with me, please. We're in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end." He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Dear Lord, we love you. We ask you to make your presence known in this congregation. Guide Pastor Aaron as he brings this message and help us listen to your wonderful counsel Help us be tools in your mighty hands. Help us run to you as children run to their father. And help us experience the glorious peace that comes uh, in trusting in your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Before uh, Neil Penso actually sits down, um, I want him to stay up here just for one minute because, uh, first of all, thank you for filling in for Steve. Steve is wearing many hats right now, and he bounces between nursery and IBC kids and sometimes in here. But uh, this actually turned out to be a fortunate opportunity to present Neil Penso to you as a congregation because... Uh, for uh, quite a few months, actually over six months now, and even before that, Neil Penso has been uh, on the track to becoming an elder at IBC. And uh, much like we did with Joe Fors and Chris Fobian, uh, Neil has, we, he's been on our radar for some time and has gone through uh, multiple conversations and uh, we've gone through multiple resources as to what eldering is. He was already acting as a previous deacon and uh, he's overseeing the security team. He's, he's actually wearing a number of hats himself. And part of the process of becoming an elder it means is not only do we internally have a conversation as elders, but we also want to hear from you. And so we really open it up for basically a 30-day period to hear from you because part of our role is to make sure that we're being as thorough as possible. And so this isn't a, uh, a witch hunt, by the way. Uh, this is not something that we're kind of going, all right, bring all the dirt out, you know. This isn't politics. Uh, that is coming next year. Oh, boy. <laughs> but... But uh, this is actually a glorious opportunity, and just so you know, uh, from the elder standpoint, up until this day, 
We have wholehearted agreement as far as bringing Neil Penso on to this team uh, of elders. And so, but we would love to hear from you. So this is your opportunity to not only just kind of to say something, but this is also, if I could say it this way, primarily your opportunity to bring a, a, a word of validation uh, not just going like, well, do I have any, you, you, you know, so often as people, we, we uh, will only speak if we have something negative to say. This is also a great opportunity to say something very positive, like, wow, man, I've seen this, I've known him, I've watched him. Uh, let me just kind of give you a hearty yes and amen to what has already been in motion for a very long time. And so, Neil, we are excited for kind of moving to this final stage of this process. And again, we open it up to you. So if you have anything to say to us, we are more than eager to hear. And uh, we look forward to seeing what God is ultimately going to confirm to us as a body. Okay? All right. Thanks, brother. All right. That said, I don't know if your Bibles are still open to Isaiah chapter 9. If they're not, I'm just going to This is your friendly reminder to reopen them or turn them back on if you are being on the naughty list and still using your electronic Bibles on a Sunday morning. Just kidding. Do what you got to do. Just don't pay attention to all the other notifications that come up when you do that. Um, If you have been with us for uh, the past few weeks, then you are also aware that we have embarked on a very um, short series. We finished our our Attributes of God series that went for about six months, and now we are in this short series called Advent. Advent means arrival, the arrival of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And specifically, we've been asking this question, who is Jesus? You see, in the attributes of God, we were talking about who is God, because we were able to see and maybe even acknowledge that we all have, in some way, and to some degree, have some distorted idea about God. And now in this short Advent series, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? It's important that we get that question right. It's important that we understand who is Jesus because who you say Jesus is can be the difference between eternal life and eternal separation from God. Thankfully, we are not left to ourselves to figure out or answer this question, who is Jesus? Because God, from the very beginning, God the Father has been eager to tell us who his son is, and he's been, given, he's been given us clues ever since Genesis chapter 3. Recall in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. There's consequences because of their rebellious choices, but we see that God also promises redemption even in the midst of the rebellious choices, and part of that promise of redemption is the fact that, hey, things are bad right now, but I'm going to make them really good again. Things are bad, and they're going to get worse, but they're going to get better when it's all said and done. And so we see from Genesis chapter 3, through all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see this through the prophets, that God has not been silent. God has not been silent about his son or about this gift that he would give to the world, a gift that would ultimately resolve and redeem those who are under the curse of sin and death. And as you can probably guess by now, that gift we know very well, that gift is Jesus the Christ. 
So far, we've learned that Jesus, you know, we have, again, we all have an idea about who Jesus is, but Isaiah the prophet actually tells us, in part, though there are other passages of scripture we could turn to, to understand who Jesus is, but Isaiah tells us in one verse, verse six specifically, four names or four titles about who this promised redeemer actually is. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that Jesus is wonderful counselor. And wonderful counselor, we learned that it, that means that it is in our best interest to always go to Jesus first, not necessarily to one another first, to go to Jesus first because he knows everything about you. He knows everything about your situation. And here's the thing, any, everything that God knows about, he also has something to say to you. We need to understand that as Jesus is wonderful counselor, he's not just an option to consider. He is the only one who really knows your situation better than anybody else. And he's, he's the only one that has words of eternal life to convey to you, to minister to your heart, to tell you what you need to hear. And so Jesus is wonderful counselor. We also learned last week that Jesus is mighty, mighty God. Two mighties, back to back. Jesus is mighty, mighty God, meaning that even though you and I are limited in so many different ways in life, even though you and I are powerless and oftentimes unable to control our circumstances, unable to control things that, that we are faced with in life, we understand that because Jesus is mighty, mighty God, he is not limited as you and I are. Jesus is able to do infinitely more than we could ask or think, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.20. And so this morning we learn a third name, or we learn, we, we, we kind of unpack a third title that is ascribed to Jesus. Yes, he is wonderful counselor. He is mighty, mighty God, but he is also everlasting Father. Jesus the Christ, the promised Redeemer, the one who would take care of our sin problem is everlasting Father. Now before we jump into kind of unpacking the, the significance of what that means for our lives, as well as just kind of what that means in general, I want to take a few minutes for us to understand really this Isaiah passage that we've been kind of reading through every single week. You might, I don't know if you noticed it or not, we've been, the person reading has been reading the exact same message. It's almost as if I had no other passage to turn to. Uh, and, I, and I just only work an hour and a half on Mondays or Sundays anyway. So, um, no, that's not true. Uh, I purposely wanted to keep rereading and rereading the same passage every single Sunday during this Advent season because I want us to really understand the context of which Isaiah is speaking to. I want to read verse 1 for us. And uh, in we're going to actually read verse 1 together. This is in the ESV. I'm also going to read it from the NLT, the New Living Translation, um, because there are some names and just information in there that oftentimes I think can, we probably will just be quick to gloss over. And so there's actually much to be gleaned from that. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her, that is a reference to Judah, who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Another translation that actually helps kind of give us some understanding of what Isaiah is speaking to. Let me just read this from the New Living Translation. Nevertheless, that that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Now, what is Isaiah the prophet referring to right at the very outset of chapter 9? What, what is he talking about? I mean, what, where in the world is Zebulun and Naphtali? And, and what and where are the Galilee of the nations or the Galilee of the Gentiles? And maybe even the question is in your mind, do these details even matter? Because sometimes we get to verse 6. We like verse 6. 6 is popular. Verse 1 through 5, eh, you know, we know it's Scripture. We know it. we got to read it. We know we got to accept it. But we may not spend that much time camping out on it, right? Because, again, we start reading these names and we don't know really what we're reading at times. Well, let me just say this. Zebulun and Naphtali are, are, are the names of the two, son, or two of the sons or 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob, remember one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, his name was changed by God to become Israel. That's why Israel is called the Israelites is because their father, Jacob, Two of the sons are named Zebulun and Naphtali. You might recall back in in Genesis, and we will be going through that in detail starting next year, uh, Jacob's 12 sons eventually multiplied and became millions of Israelites, and they were eventually enslaved to the Egyptian people. You guys remember that? They're in Exodus, they're enslaved, they're crying out to the Lord. There used to be a lot of people, and now the the pharaohs were kind of going, wait a second, we're scared of these people. They enslave them to accomplish everything they want to do. They cry out to the Lord, and God raises up a deliverer eventually, a deliverer named Moses who would lead his people back to the land that God had promised their forefather, Abraham. Though it wasn't Moses that led them into the promised land, it was Joshua that ultimately led the people of Israel into the land that God had promised to them. And after taking possession of the land, Joshua divided the land into 12 regions for each tribe of Israel. Jacob's 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel. If you look at this little map right here for you, it's not very clear to you, but that's okay. (laughs) But I'm looking at it on this screen over here. This is the Sea of Galilee right here. And uh, these names aren't really coming up that clear. They were clear on my computer. Apparently, they're not clear right here. Um, but you see right here, there's Zebulun right here, right? You see that? And there's Naphtali right there. That's where Isaiah the prophet is actually making reference to. Again, all these names right here, guess what? These are the 12 sons of Jacob. They're all around there. You have the Sea of Galilee. You have the Dead Sea. You got the, the Jordan River Valley. I won't even go into the, from the river to the sea, that whole thing that's going on right now. That's what it's referring to. Yet this is the land, according to Scripture, that God had promised to Abraham and then the forefathers Isaac and Jacob. 
But this is the region right here that Isaiah the prophet is referring to, the Sea of Galilee. Now, when you see the, the way of the sea, that is that reference to the Sea of Galilee. And this is the region right there. We also have the Galilee of nations or the Galilee of Gentiles that, that uh, is spoken of in verse 1. What in the world is Isaiah talking about there? He's talking about the mixed ethnic groups that exist in this region, especially since Assyria came and took over that area. This whole northern region of Israel was taken over by the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, and then the Medes and the Persians, and of course, and the Greeks came, and then the Romans came. I know. And then, uh, (laughs) I agree. And so... There's been a lot of historical unrest in this region from the very beginning. But at first, when God led the people of Israel back from Egypt to the land he had promised them, this was Canaan, then guess what? This is the land that they had settled in. This is the land that they took possession of that God had given them. And for 600 years, they had, had kind of really populated the land until Assyria came in. And then all of a sudden, this northern region especially became multi-ethnic, It used to be predominantly Jewish, and it became multi-ethnic. And so when Isaiah is talking about the Galilee of the nations, the Galilee of the Gentiles, he's talking about the fact that when the Assyrians came in and took over, and everybody from all parts of the known world would come in, and now it was no longer Jewish for the last 600 years. It was all about pretty much all kinds of people from all sorts of nations that were represented there. That is what Isaiah is referring to. And you might be asking this, so what? Right? You know, what does that have to do with my current situation right now, right? What does it have to do with my life? Well, first of all, I just, it's, it's helpful to understand the scriptures that we sometimes so quickly gloss over. You see, what, when, when, when Isaiah is talking about Zebulun and Naphtali and the, and the Sea of the Galilee and the Gentile of the nations, uh, it's all, these are all synonymous terms. These are all synonymous points. In other words, what Isaiah is talking about, he's, Isaiah grew up in the south. He's speaking to the people in the north going, hey, this is what's going to happen. But ultimately, God is the one orchestrating everything that is happening here. Yes, the Assyrians are going to come in. Yes, you have been living in rebellion. But God is using these foreign nations and ultimately to bring you back into a place of repentance. And while we are oftentimes, as I said before, tempted to just kind of read right over these names as if they don't really have much meaning or significance because we don't really understand the context, well, in some ways, now we understand what Isaiah is speaking to. We understand that, oh, he's speaking to a very real people in, very, uh, in a very real situation. He's speaking to people that are going, oh, these are real events that took place. These are real struggles that took place. This is not theoretical. This is time and space. This is time and history. These are people that have struggled greatly. The question that it's always kind of almost at the forefront of our minds, or at least that should be at the forefront of our minds as we read through Isaiah, especially this particular part of Isaiah, is this. What message could instill hope in the context of great loss? Because you see, the, the, the perspective now was everything's changed. It's all different. For a while, for a long time, we had peace. For a long time, we were able to inherit, in a sense, live in the blessing that God had provided, and now it's all changed. 
Now what? What message is able to lift a nation out of deep despair and distress? And the answer to that question is this. The answer to that despair and distress is that God has promised another deliverer. This has been God's way of working over and over again from the very beginning of human history. That when great distress and struggle are the predominant realities of people's lives, that God listens, he hears, he's not absent, he's not a distant deity just kind of going, hey, figure it out. No, God cares. He raised up many judges, he raised up Moses, he raised up Joshua, and he's raising up an ultimate redeemer, one who would heal the brokenhearted, one who would come and set the captive free. And this redeemer would come out, wait for it, of Nazareth of all places. You know where Nazareth is at? Right over here. The same region where we say, this is a lost territory. It's infiltrated. It's, not, it's no longer Jewish. It's, it's, it's just mixed with all kinds of different ethnicities over there. And yet, out of Nazareth comes the one who was promised by God. Out of Nazareth, I mean, this is the question that was asked even in the New Testament. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You better believe it. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one from God would arrive from this very region that was dominated by hardship and hopelessness. This is why the prophet Micah, he says this in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. But, oh, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, Ephrathah, again, this is not always the easiest things to read, <laughs> are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. Who is this Christ? Who is this ruler? That Micah, the prophet, speaks, to, speaks of. This ruler is what, my, uh, what the prophet Isaiah speaks to. He is wonderful counselor. Not just a wonderful counselor. The grammar is, he is our wonderful counselor. He is your wonderful counselor. He is mighty, mighty God. And we see, thirdly, that he is everlasting Father. The question, again, another question that I believe we need to ask and therefore answer is what was God trying to communicate about his son, Jesus, when he gave him this title, Everlasting Father? What is God trying to convey to us, his people? What does God want us to, um, us to imagine when we hear these words or this title about Jesus? Or more, be more personally, what difference does it make to me? Let me take more of a rabbit trail to answer that question. About a week and a half ago, uh, 
George Wood actually invited a handful of us guys over to watch a movie called uh, Show Me the Father. And I'm not sure if you've read that or not, uh, or seen this movie or not. It's the same people that put out um, Courageous and War Room and many other uh, films in, in that nature. And this film, Show Me the Father, was just, again, all about the fatherhood of God. And in it, there's so many things that were just kind of brought our kind of, kind of focused attention on, really, what does it mean to be father? You see, fatherhood means to be founder. It means to be, a, to, to be the source. It means to be chief. It means to be leader. In fact, one of the persons of the Trinity is referred to as father, right? God, the father. And God as father is actually mentioned 311 times in the New Testament. In fact, a significant aspect of Jesus' ministry is not just that he came to die and to rise from the dead again to take care of our sin problem. That was ultimately his mission. But what he was also doing in his ministry he was, is that Jesus was helping us to understand, to realize, and to relate to God as father. This is a foreign concept up until this point in history. You see, nobody was an atheist back in biblical times. We have maybe atheists today, and everybody's saying, oh, there's no such thing or anything. Back in biblical times, there were so many deities. Everybody believed in some kind of deity. There was nobody that was godless. Now, they may have been worshiping or following a false god, but they, weren't, they believed that the gods were real. They believed that were very spiritual, uh, divine beings uh, related to everything. But all these deities or divine beings were definitely not this kind of this idea or this label as father. To relate to God or a God as father would have been the most foreign concept ever. And yet here on on the pages of scripture, we see that God is referred to as father. That Jesus is coming as everlasting Father. And really, the, what we see as we kind of look back, because we understand that Jesus is Father, everlasting Father, because God is Father, because one of the Trinity and the persons of the Trinity is Father, this means that earthly fathers are really intended to be an imprint. They're intended to be a mirror image of what a, their Heavenly Father is. Let's make this really, really focused here. Fathers. Want to be fathers. You have been commissioned by God to represent Him, to represent your heavenly Father, to help your children understand what it means that God is Father. You have been commissioned by God to help your children know and understand what it means that God is Father. This isn't me going to be pointing the fingers, but let me just say it. I wonder what impression of Father that your children have based on your leadership. You see, earthly fathers are called to help their children understand what it means that God is our Father. To understand that there's a Father in heaven who loves us, who is there for us, 
who is never too busy. Even Jesus in Matthew 19, right? Let the little children come to me. Everybody else is annoyed by them, but Jesus says, no, I love them. And I'm not too busy for them. Earthly fathers are called by God to represent God, their heavenly father, by never being too preoccupied or disinterested in the affairs of their children. Earthly fathers are called to be validators of their children. You look at how when Jesus was being baptized in the Jordan River, right? And John the Baptist, or in the Sea of Galilee, and John the Baptist is baptizing him. And then all of a sudden, this voice from heaven comes, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Father in heaven is saying, I love my son. I am so proud of my son. Fathers, you are called to speak into your children's life like that. Earthly fathers are called to be providers. They're called to be protectors. In fact, Dr. Meg Meeker says this, fathers are the central figure in the identity formation of a child. But I know I'm preaching to the choir in some respects. But one of the things I know, I'm very, or at least I'm very well aware of, is that one of the most devastating pandemics, if I could use the word, is less viral and more relational. One of the most devastating pandemics we face right now in our culture is the lack of fathers that are present in the home. The lack of a father's loving presence and influence in the lives of their kids and the younger generation. Again, you can, I'm just taking these stats that were given in this, in this movie, this documentary, but they're sobering. I want to say this before I say it. I understand that when we think of Jesus as everlasting father or God as heavenly father, that may be more of a trigger for you than a joyful celebration. I'm under no delusion to understand that some of you, when you hear father, that doesn't conjure up all kinds of warm, fuzzy feelings for you. You hear father and it's like, oof. You see, for some of you, a father is just someone who hurts you. A father is just someone who disappoints you. A father is just someone who's maybe disappointed by you. A father is just someone who is absent or someone who you wish was more absent so you felt safer. And yet the role of the father is crucial for the spiritual and the mental and the emotional and the relational health of the next generation. Some of the stats, which are so staggering and humbling to just emphasize this point, 90% of homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. 90%. 85% of all behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 63% of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. 
85% of youth sitting in prison come from fatherless homes. 71% of pregnant teenagers come from fatherless homes. Children from fatherless homes are four times more likely to live in poverty. Children from fatherless homes are ten times more likely to use drugs. Children from fatherless homes are 14 times more likely, plug your ears, to commit rape. Children from fatherless homes are 32 times more likely to run away. What am I getting at? What I'm getting at is fatherhood matters. The presence of a father matters. And it's not just a physical presence of someone who puts food on the table, but it's the holistic, emotional, mental, relational, spiritual presence of a fatherhood. It matters. As I think about Jesus as my everlasting father, as your everlasting father. I had a good time this week just reminiscing about my own father. And I know my, my journey is not your journey. I understand that. My experience is not your experience. For me, I was grateful for the fact that I was blessed by a father who was present. One such story that stands out or is so vivid in my mind that uh, as if it was happened yesterday um, was kind of when I was getting ready to move into my sophomore, I was already in my sophomore year, and um, I remember I was just under deep distress and anxiety and the kind of the weight of the world. And uh, at the time, what seemed so significant for me, though as parents we may not look at it in the same way, but... Since I was a little kid, about that tall, I was wrestling and competing in wrestling, and I was wrestling all the way through and doing preseason and postseason and summertime wrestling, everything else. And moving into my sophomore year, I was already doing preseason wrestling, and I was just feeling the weight of anxiety because, um, because I was pretty successful at wrestling, uh, that also made it very difficult to continue love wrestling. Because now wrestling became, I have to win, and I can't lose. And if I lose, that is going to somehow affect my relationship with people. And so I remember coming to my father one evening and, you know, get my dad. He gets up at 530 in the morning. He comes home at 630 at night, long commute. He works with very troubled people all day long. It's, uh, you know, he's exhausted. I could tell on his face, but I'm walking up to him and he actually says, are you okay? I'm like, not really. And even though he's tired and exhausted, he made himself available. He says, what's going on? And at first, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to say anything. I'm hesitant to go like, I don't know, because like, I don't want to disappoint my dad. I don't want to say something that maybe he's disappointed in me. But I finally said, okay, here it is. I don't know if I want to wrestle. And the irony is, I've been wrestling since I was a little kid. So it was like, it's just kind of what I did. I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to wrestle. You know what the first words that came out of his mouth were? That's okay. I'm like, really? It's okay? You're okay if I don't wrestle? And he's like, yeah, it's okay. If you don't want to wrestle, Aaron, it's okay. Kind of question, you know, why don't you want to wrestle? And I 
kind of unpacked even more, knowing that it was okay, actually drew me in and said, okay, finally, I'll tell you why I don't think it's, why I'm feeling this way. And I kind of shared my heart. And he says, hey, if you don't want to wrestle this next year, that's okay. I love you no matter what, whether you wrestle or whether you don't wrestle. And he listened to me and he did not criticize me. And he loved me without any expectation of how he might look to other people. And the irony of it all was having that conversation with my dad who was available even though he was still exhausted changed everything. I ended up wrestling that year (laughs) and did pretty well. (laughs) What I'm getting at is this. Fatherhood matters. Being a, a present father, just because you're in the home doesn't mean you're present. Being emotionally, being relationally, as hard as it might be, and I understand, trust me, you've got 30 other things on your mind and other issues that you're grappling with and you're processing with, and it's so difficult going like, oh, these kids sometimes, this is not very timely. And yet, our Heavenly Father beckons us and says, will you represent me and will your children understand what I'm like by the way you love, by your attentive care, because you were available, because you were present, because you loved unconditionally. That question I asked earlier, what is God or what was God trying to convey about Jesus when he gave him the title Everlasting Father? What does God want us to imagine? Well, I want you to actually close your eyes right now, and I want you to imagine. Go ahead and close your eyes right now. And I don't know if this makes you feel weird or not, but I did this this week. And as I think about the question, what does God want me to imagine? This is what came to my mind. Imagine Jesus walking up to you with the biggest grin on his face. Not a look of disappointment. Not a look of, you did it again. Not a look of, I don't know. He's just smiling. And not only is he smiling, but he's stretching out his arms super wide with the intent to give you the biggest bear hug you could ever imagine. And imagine Jesus as he's just hugging you and smiling and you don't even know what to do maybe in that moment. Your arms maybe are still at your side. You don't know whether to embrace him back or what. Imagine Jesus, the one who formed you in your mother's womb, whispering into your ear, saying this, I love you. I love you more than you could imagine. In fact, I love you so much that I died for you so that we could live life forever together. What is Jesus saying to you right now? What is the Father saying to you at this moment?